Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. Shockingly, in the middle of the worst pandemic in a century, children and teachers are being forced back into school at the risk of their own lives. Already, we've seen outbreaks in schools across the nation and a president that refuses to bow to science in a sick attempt at political gain. Nicholas Ferroni is a nationally recognized educator and activist who educates, mentors, and inspires students to reach their goals while driving a national dialogue about education reform. He joined me to talk about the state of schools during COVID-19. We're now at a point where the balance has shifted and the appropriate path is to close schools. We're going to have the schools remain closed for the rest of the year. We're going to continue the distance learning program. We jumped in and we considered the needs of our students and our staff first. And those needs really were those needs at the level of the most basic needs. Um, We've served over 2 million meals to date. Teachers across the nation are fighting back today against calls to reopen schools. They say they're scared to death, and some are even preparing wills in the event they die from COVID-19. So we're very much going to put pressure on uh, governors and everybody else to open the schools. That the idea of having treatments available or a vaccine to facilitate the re-entry of students into the fall term would be something that would be a bit of a bridge too far. I'm Nicholas Ferroni. I'm a high school teacher who advocates for teachers, students, and public schools. Sorry, not sorry. Nicholas, I got to tell you, I am terrified to send my kids back to school. So I wanted to talk to you. You're an amazing teacher. You're always there for your kids. And for my listeners right now, we should just note that these things are changing daily. And this interview is pre-recorded. So this is where it stands in early August. Nicholas, what is your school planning on doing? My school at least took the advice of the teachers and parents and sent out a survey, which they asked them to vote. It was literally, when I looked at the results, it was 51% to like 49% of all the parents and teachers want to go back to a hybrid model, which means obviously want to try to go in if possible or for as long as we possibly can, and then try to remote learn one day a week. So go in four days, half day schedule. So half the students in the morning, half in the afternoon. And then remote Wednesday, which gives our school and our custodial staff times to clean the districts and clean the schools and then try it again. So you're going in on Monday, Tuesday, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, and Monday, Tuesday, you'll have a different class than Thursday or Friday. Or how is that working? We're doing half days. So half the students come in in the morning and then half come in the afternoon. So it's kind of like an A-B schedule which I have a school of 2,600 students. So getting kids to school and from school, arriving and leaving is always a nightmare. So that in itself is going to cause a lot of problems. What grade do you teach again? I teach 10th grade history and 11th and 12th grade cultural studies. So you are in really the crux of that sort of danger zone that they're talking about, because what they're saying is kids elementary school level 
probably not only will get mild symptoms if they were to get coronavirus, but they're also speculating that perhaps they cannot transmit coronavirus. But then once you hit middle school and high school and kids are like 13 and up, it's a whole new ballgame. That's true. I mean, I also have the luxury of talking to young adults and kind of reasoning with them. Elementary school students, I can't comprehend telling a child again, I think I mentioned last time, like, don't hug anybody, don't touch anybody. You can't touch your teacher. You can't hug your teacher. You can't play. You can't share toys with somebody. That age group, and obviously you're a mother, it's like trying to explain something to a child. You can't explain things like pandemics or sexism or big ideas because they don't get it because they're so innocent and loving and honest and affectionate. Right. My heart goes out to elementary school teachers. And it's terrifying to try to explain things to them because you also don't want to make them overly anxious about the situation. I don't want to project my anxiety about the situation and sending them to school because eventually at some point they're going to have to go back to school. So do you think what your district is doing or your state is doing is a good plan? The irony is, and it's so funny because I made a TikTok that went viral about showing teachers walking from month to month. From March, we're heroes. April, we're heroes. And then come like May and June, now we're cutting budgets and now we're selfish because we're putting our lives, our families, and our students ahead of anything, like safety over everything else. And I think we want to go back to school. Honestly, listen, teaching online is the toughest I've ever done. It was 24 hours a day. It was the hardest work I've ever done. It lacked so much connection and there was so lack of being personable with my students. Everything I love about teaching, that's not it. Those moments, those interactions. I want to go back to school. I get it. Like everybody wants to go back to school. Nobody wants to keep their kids home from school, right? I mean, parents feel that way. Teachers feel that way. But to make going back to school a political statement, just like they made wearing masks, when we're dealing with a public health crisis, unlike anything we've ever seen in our generation and younger, to make this about, you know, open school, you know, he's just... Um, Guess who's just... not going back to school? His child and his right. grandchildren. It's like war. It's easy for me to send other people's kids to go die. They mean nothing to me. They're expendable. I care too much about my students and their families. They're not expendable to me. My colleagues are not expendable to me. Your child is not expendable to me, but it's expendable. It's all about politics and economy. What do you make of pediatricians who say kids should go back to school? It was very divided, wasn't it? The studies were very divided. Yeah, but it was a majority. And the suggestion that was made was that we get kids back to school in the fall. If the majority of pediatricians can give 100% certainty that kids are not as symptomatic or lower risk like the flu and that they can transmit it to their 40, 50, 60-year-old teachers, I mean, I support that. I still have faith in doctors as long as they're not politicized or not being manipulated or edited or controlled. Well, you know what my husband said to me this morning? And it was such a twisted way to think about it. And it fucked me up for a good half hour when I was listening to him talk. He was like... Do you think pediatricians want the kids to go back to school because their businesses are suffering because no child is getting sick with strep throat or conjunctivitis or any of those things that they would normally be getting if they were going to camps or to schools? And I don't want to believe that that's true. Well, doctors also used to endorse cigarettes and told us that it was saturated fats that were the problem, not sugar. So it's like I question everything. I guess we have to. And it's so sad that we have to make these decisions. And as parents, we can only follow our gut, right? And our hearts and make the best decisions we possibly can for our kids. But this is really hard. My kid's school is actually opening 
And the reason why they're opening is because they're a very small school. And they said that they didn't feel like they did the remote learning well. And they definitely don't think they have it in them to do hybrid or to give parents an option. So here we are three weeks before school is about to start. And I have no idea what I'm doing with my children. I know that I can't do what I did at the end of last school year, which is David and I cannot work from home and teach our children because it was chaos. With five kids aged 2 to 17, Olivia Gravish always has her hands full. But now she's not just mom, she's teacher too. I guess I'm overwhelmed. I don't know where to find the resources. Um, And the resources they do have, even though they have an abundance of them, I don't know what to to actually look for. On top of that, I have four different grades to try and teach. He would take the morning shift and I would work in the morning and then I would do English and arts and crafts and social studies and history with the kids in the afternoon. I feel simply, I have parents email me all the time about, we want our kids to go back, but we're concerned and we're this. And the same reason why teachers, like, we want to go back, we're concerned. I mean, we are concerned about our lives and our families, but I don't want to experiment on children and find out that we were wrong. When it comes to kids and it comes to anybody, I always err on the side of safety. With all these comparisons to the flu and sending kids to school and they get, you know, whatever. The flu, there is a vaccine. The flu, there is treatment. Immunity, antibodies. We know that the flu mutates every single year, right? We have no answers with this beast. And so you're right. Why are we experimenting with our children? But hypocrisy of them canceling the Republican convention. Athletes who have every resource in the world and are That's millionaires right. are opting out. That's and it's right. like, I don't blame them. But when teachers opt out, the perspective and treatment is so insane and so hypocritical and so political. You can't have this, but you can do this. And also when firefighters or police officers are hired, they know that there is a risk to their life in that job. Should we maybe now be expecting the same of our teachers? I mean, with shootings in schools and now this, I mean, do you feel safe? I felt 100% safe in reference to even the issue with shootings in schools. I mean, it happens and we have to prevent it, but I've never felt unsafe in my school. This would be the first time where it's like the fear and the uncertainty, I think, is so, I mean, it definitely hits me home. And not so much for me. Like, I'm not concerned about my health. I'm concerned about my parents, my students, their families. Right. And that's the thing that always comes to mind. But for the longest time, when I complain about teacher pay, they're like, you took that job you never get into. When I complain about one thing, you took that job. Now... I have teachers email me that they're doing living wills because they're being forced to go back where there's no guidelines, where they're yeah. in a certain district that think this is all political and it's fake and the kids don't have to wear masks. And it's like they're making living wills or they're retiring. I do not feel safe going back into the school building right now. When schools closed in South Carolina in March, there were 45 cases. Um, yeah, a couple days ago, there were over 1,200 cases, and they've ranged between 1,500 and 2,000. Uh, and so I don't feel safe until the state gets the number of cases under control. The expectation of, oh, we've got to get students back in the school building to take care of their social and emotional needs is really not fair to 
um, the teachers and the schools because they cannot have that burden on top of being able to teach during a pandemic. Do kids have to wear masks in your school? In my school, it's mandated. It's yeah. the same thing with headphones. It's like if I yell at a kid for putting on his mask and he refuses to, what's that situation? Is it political now? Right. I have a colleague in Tennessee who emails me every day because he's going back to school tomorrow and he has issues with his health and the kids don't have to wear masks. He literally said, I revised my will, but it's like, this is the present day world. By the way, not to be totally morbid, but right now everybody needs to really sit down and tell their loved ones what they want if, God forbid, they get this. I just had this conversation with my husband last week because I don't want to be put on a ventilator. And I know it's a really morbid conversation, but I would like for them to do whatever they can possibly do without that. And those are the conversations we have to have. But you're absolutely right that this is a multi-generational issue. This is not just about the kids. This is about the teachers. It's about the teachers' parents. It's about if you live in a multi-generational house. Like, I don't know what Milo's friend's parents are doing on the weekends. I'd like to think that they are being responsible, but I don't know. He comes in. He gives it to a teacher. My 72-year-old dad picks Milo up from school and bam, just like that. We know how fast this spreads. But here's the thing. I want you to just break down the difference between remote instruction and online learning for my listeners. Online learning is more like an online school where students watch videos, maybe have some interactions with the teachers. They've been around for around 15 years as far as online schools. Remote learning is no different than what I do in the classroom, except the personal aspect of being present where we record videos. We obviously make lessons plans. We grade assignments. Right. We go through that whole process. People are always making a discussion of like homeschooling. And my sister is a teacher and she helps her son with his schoolwork every day. And she's like, that's my parental job. My teaching job is to give lesson plans and do that other stuff as well. And she's like, there's a difference between parenting and writing lessons. Like if your child's teachers are not as interactive as they would in the classroom providing video, and I would have an issue with that with them. But I mean, from what I've seen, majority of teachers are going above and beyond to just, I mean, I spend hours every week calling home because if I have students who don't have Wi-Fi or, or share devices, and now it yeah. becomes privileged learning. It's not about education. It's privileged learning. Exactly. And then it becomes a civil rights issue because if kids don't have even quick enough broadband to be able to stream online learning, 8 million children did not have access to what they needed as far as online capabilities in order to stream their classrooms properly. I mean, what are we doing I what promise are you, Alyssa, doing? the taxpayer money is not coming to schools. It's being siphoned off in a million different places. Well, here's the other thing that teachers keep telling me, that they feel that they're not safe because the buildings themselves are not safe, right? They're old. They don't have adequate ventilation or air exchange. Some classrooms might not even have windows that open. Are and there layers of lead paint from 1950s right. and 60s? <laughs> We're in your master. A new school year in a pandemic means unexpected priorities for parents. And do you feel a lot of fresh air coming through? Anna K. Brown's son, Anthony, goes to an older school in a neighborhood with a high number of cases of COVID-19. The building is stuffy, not all the windows open, and that worries her. They're all wearing this mask, trying to breathe, and just that same air has been circulating in that, in that classroom. Are there other less obvious reasons than just the virus that returning to school might make teachers unsafe? I've been preaching for smaller class sizes, as many of us have for the longest time, because it allows us to get that connection. 
But I had a teacher, a kindergarten teacher say she's going back to school and she has 45 students in her classroom. Mm. No way. The hallways in our schools are so packed. Just the numbers alone of that many people packed in a confined space is literally a petri dish for this virus to spread. And whether it's going to affect them or not, who knows? But it's like so many people packed in one place is a recipe for disaster. And education happens often, packing as many students as you can in one classroom. Right. So I mean, well, that would be my concern as a parent is saying, first of all, how many kids in class? How are they going to move from class to class? Are they going right. to remain in the same class? Is it a pod where they can eat lunch? Like those are the questions I think parents should be asking. It just feels like, honestly, we are dealing with the consequences of American selfishness, right? We continued to cut education funding for teachers, for the arts, for buildings, because Americans just want low taxes. Or it's not my kid in school, so I don't care. My kids are out of school, so I don't care anymore. Like it's always self-interest, which I understand. How do we get out of it, though, Nicholas? I think this pandemic has revealed that people only focus with self-interest. There's no, thank God this wasn't World War II when they were asking people to conserve and sacrifice or go fight for what's right, because we've become conditioned that self-interest goes above all interest in this country. I can't imagine how you sustain a functioning democracy when everybody only cares about themselves. And obviously charity starts at home, but it doesn't end there. That's kind of my always what I say when it, in reference to like helping others. You know, it starts at home. It doesn't end there. And also, I just think that we are continuing on with this cyclical pattern of not giving every child equal opportunity. And it just continues to perpetuate the cycle of poverty and inequality. And it's just heartbreaking to me. And it's easy for me to say because I have the privilege and luxury of hiring a teacher to come in and teach my kids so that they're safe. But what is the single mother of five with one either computer or tablet going to do if one of the kids in that family has, let's say, severe asthma? What do they do? They're not really able to go full remote because they don't have enough access for all of their students across the area because not everyone is able to get access to the internet or computers. So they're doing what they can to try to help make sure that kids are still learning during this time. Especially under the current health system and the current academic system and the current system of helping families who are in need right now. I mean, it's one of those things where we're setting people up to fail, to be in debt, to struggle, to get sick. Life's a race. And I tell my students, there's some people who are starting halfway down with the race and there's some people who are starting on the starting point. And the irony is the people who are starting halfway do not want to give up that opportunity. They don't want to give up that head start. As a society, we have to collectively, especially when it comes to youth, there's no such thing as a lost cause when it comes to kids. And I am overly optimistic, obviously, being a teacher, but if we invest in youth and we invest in education, public education in general, it solves all the world's problems, all the ills. It solves everything. Education is the one investment that everybody benefits from. If you're concerned about paying taxes for prison, invest in education. We also have to dismantle the system that's in place for sending kids of different races and different social backgrounds to different places, depending on their behavior, because there is racism in the school system and systemic racism in schools how we teach it, how we punish certain students. I'm optimistic that this time is kind of the time where we're going to try to dismantle everything and educators are trying to dismantle it from the ground up. When schools were desegregated, they did not take the white children and put them into the schools with the black children. They took the black children out of their neighborhoods and put them into schools in white neighborhoods. And to me, that right there tells you exactly everything you need to know about 
the institutionalized racism that is in our education system. It was never about desegregation. And guess what happened to the black teachers? They weren't hired. And a lot of people of color didn't go into education in the 60s and 70s because white school districts were not hiring them. So now there's a big push to encourage more men of color, more people of color to pursue education because students of color need to see themselves. White students need to see people of color in those positions. Exactly right. Representation is so important. Not only representation, but authority figures in a different race, I think, are so important, right? Like I did this interview with Ziwi, who is, it's called Baited. It's all about her baiting white people about racism. And everyone kept saying to me, why are you doing it? Why are you doing it? And I didn't know at first, I felt like it was an important thing to do, but also like, it's okay for us to be uncomfortable or it's okay to have a black talk show host be the authoritarian in an interview. It's okay to feel that thing that I don't feel when I'm on Ellen or something else. So it was, I think, very important. And when you have, look, we all have our, you know, I say to my friends all the time, if you're following more white people on social media than black people, then you're part of the problem. have to be able to expose our children to all of the voices from this age, from a young, young age. How are you teaching history and racism in your class? I would imagine knowing you that you probably want to teach the most honest version of civil rights and of slavery and the enslaved. And how much can you teach that's truly honest and not whitewashing? Well, the irony is I was called anti-white at one point because I teach about so much diversity in my history class. I rarely use the textbooks. I remember my first year of teaching, I wrote in my journal, I teach white history to black kids. I teach male history to girls. And I remember putting a question mark, like, how am I going to change this? And it's so interesting, too, because as a teacher, nothing's more enjoyable than when students go home and talk about what you're teaching class with their families. Or they come and say, you know, Mr. Fernie, I never liked history until I had this class. But I teach stuff that's extremely controversial. Like I've been teaching about the Tulsa race riots for 10 years. You know, I teach about historical figures like Jack Johnson, the African-American boxer who led to a civil rights movement in the early 1900s. We teach about Juneteenth. We teach about these topics. And the irony is not when I have kids who are amazed by them, but when I have parents who push back because it's not in the school book. You talked about this and it's not in a school book. Or for one of my classes, pop culture history, we do like historical myths. And I remember doing the thing about historical figures who have been, I would say, altered throughout history. And I remember one of my students did the whole presentation on religious figures who were portrayed by white figures in films. So most people think they're white. I remember I had parents come in and say, did you had a kid teach lesson about how Jesus was brown and Middle Eastern? And I said, yeah, because he was. But we've always seen him and he's been white, you know, he's, and then it wasn't confrontational. It was more like, we never thought about that. And it's like, I love teaching juniors and seniors because first of all, they're so woke. They're protesting things. When I was in high school, I was worried about prom and they're just- It gives me so much hope for the future. It's so inspiring. And they call me out when I, I mean, I have a transgender student who makes sure that I use the right terminology and sits with me after class and we have discussions. Because again, I'm learning. I'm still learning as I go. We all are. Yeah. Every we day all I try are. to unlearn these beliefs, these sexist and racist beliefs that I've been conditioned to believe. You have to acknowledge it, which I think, Alyssa, most people rather say, I don't see color or I'm not racist because they don't have to do any work. 
But it's like, I love being a high school teacher. I love having diverse students because it makes me a better person. It makes me want to be a better teacher. Of course. Well, I want to talk about, speaking of going above and beyond, there are a lot of services schools provide that are not part of the core educating children, right? Teachers and schools now, they provide food, they provide medical care, social services, disability services, and really so, so much more. The National School Lunch Program feeds more than 30 million children a year across the United States. Kids are eligible based on their family income and are fed breakfast and lunch at school through federal funding. But without school, what happens to those meals? Do you think that this is the job of the schools? It's funny because teachers on Twitter, there's a few different groups. And there are times where I'll make a comment that all elementary school teachers should be sainted. And then I'll get attacked by some teachers, stop saying we should be canonized. This is why they expect so much from us. And I get Mm. in little debates about, I'm not meaning it literally, but I'm just saying we go above and beyond. I shouldn't have to buy food for my students. I shouldn't have to pay for their prom tickets. I shouldn't have to help them fill out certain paperwork. I shouldn't have to lend them money for their college books. But I have, and I've done it, and I will do it because until we solve the problem, we will. Whenever I speak to elementary school teachers, I spoke a few months ago on a thousand elementary school teachers. I'm like, raise your hand if you have food in your desk for your hungry students every hand went up. Mm. That's not their job, but they do it because they care. That's heartbreaking. If I was a parent, my first question to a teacher was like, do you care about my child? Because to me, that's the most essential thing, social, emotional, their psychological makeup. Teachers always have and always will go above and beyond because we're here to help parents. I have parents who are not negligent, but they're single moms who are working two jobs and struggling. If I could help them and work with them to help their child, I mean, that's it. We're in this together. And I think that's politicians trying to politicize education. It's not me versus you, parent versus teacher. We want what's best for your child and we're in it for your child. And we're here working together. I think politicians put us against each other saying teachers blame parents, parents blame teachers. And it's, there's no blame. But I think that this is the time that we are in right now where everything is politicized. It's us versus them. It is so unproductive and unreasonable to put that kind of tribal pressure on us to have to pick a side as far as educating our kids. And also, if schools don't reopen, I wish there were a million of you, Nicholas. There are not, sadly. I have to interrupt. I mean, all I do is meet amazing educators, and I'm not nearly one of the best, but I appreciate it. Well, you're being humble. I know that there are amazing teachers out there. I've had some in my life, and I really do believe that one teacher can change your life, truly. But my fear is that if schools don't reopen, how do children get these services that they go to school also for? Some of these services that are not part of the education. Like how? Some schools, and I don't know if you saw it on the news. I mean, again, my school had grabbing bag. You could grab a bag for lunch. So the cafeteria staff and the teachers and the administrators were there every day packing lunches. So that way families who get free lunch could come by and grab bags and go. And the interesting thing, like even though schools were closed, they weren't really closed because a lot of schools were offering lunch to students and families so they can grab and go. And it's like school is so much more than just school for many students. It's structure, it's safety. I mean, they were trying to use the whole fact more children are being abused now because they're stuck home because they're not able to go to school. A lot of abuse is going unnoticed because normally teachers will notice it and then report it. And I understand that a lot of women are being domestically abused. And so they're trying to find all these ways to make teachers and schools look horrible if they don't fully open up. When in fact, it just, to me, it only exposes how much school is a sanctuary for so many, why we should invest in it. Why are they cutting budgets? Why are they firing teachers in school districts? 
So how will these cuts impact our classrooms once and when they reopen? That's going to have a tremendous effect on us. Right? So we're actually talking about putting in measures that are going to cost more. Right. And we've talked about physical distancing or trying to reduce the number of students in the classroom. And so it's really an impossible task to think about doing a budget cut at the same time as doing more. Those are the things that they're doing. And then they're saying that we're essential and we love you and support you. And then their actions are completely contradicting the message. Well, what does it feel to be on the other side of that, on the other side of the president using schools as a political weapon? What does that feel like as an educator? Well, honestly, it all depends on who's doing the attacking. The irony is the people who are attacking teachers the most lack every characteristic, empathy, compassion, selflessness need to be a teacher. Laura Ingram, she couldn't survive five minutes in a classroom. And not because she's not an educated person, but she lacks the compassion, empathy, and every skill need to be. It only hurts when people who you respect and admire say something mean. Because I'm sure you've been attacked when it's someone who you don't have respect for, and it's like, ah. But when someone you care about and respect and you actually value their opinion, it's a whole different story. It is comical, but at the same time, it's almost a rite of passage when someone who you loathe to a certain extent says something mean. It's almost like good because you don't want them to agree with you. It would scare me if they agreed with me because then it's like, wait a minute. It's frustrating because it's the president of the United States at the same time. If it was Obama saying that to me or a president or a politician I respected, it would hit my heart. The person you don't like saying something mean about you, it's like, ah. So we are basically weeks away from schools opening up. Nicholas, what do you think parents should know about reopening schools from a teacher's perspective? The first thing I would say is if a school does follow the CDC guidelines, normally I'll have pencils, notebooks, books and stuff like that. But now under CDC guidelines, students can't share anything. So they need everything. So if a teacher has 25 students, they need 25 sets of So how are they going to be able to afford that? And that's the thing. It's like you're asking teachers to spend, on average, spend $740 to spend maybe five or 6000 which sad reality is they probably will, but it's probably one-sixth of their paycheck to a certain extent on just keeping their classroom safe. But if I was a parent, I would reach out to the teacher. I would talk to the teacher, first of all, about how many students in the classroom, if they need help with anything, if there's anything their child can do or bring to make sure that it's obviously puts them in a more comfortable position when they're back in school. I'll also have them contact the school. What other procedures? Again, lockdown drills. How are we going to do lockdown drills, fire drills? Like all these things that we have to do anyway, how are they going to be maintained under these conditions? You know, lunch, is your child going to be isolated? Because to me, if my child's going to sit in isolation all day, I'd rather be home than in solitude in a school day. The academic lapse is nothing compared to the PTSD that a child's going to be going through. Unless, I mean, if you're introverted, it may not affect you as much, but children and young adults are emotional creatures. They need that compassionate interaction. And I'm concerned to see how this is going to affect their psyche over the years, especially younger children. So I would just reach out and start a dialogue with the teachers and just make sure that either they put you at ease or you kind of let them know that you're here if they need anything. Do you think schools are going to stay open? I think we'll be back for one week and then one positive case and we're back to remote teaching. I want to be optimistic. I just, schools open up. There's already positive test cases in like the first week. I read just yesterday about a Georgia school district that had 260 people test positive. It's going to be temporary. At the same time, it's like no problem with trying as long as we're following safety precautions. You're going to get a good feeling for how it'll function in those first few days. And if you need me to make a ruckus, you better 
text me and say, okay, this is not safe. We need to cause a ruckus. I am by your side and not for my kids, for everyone's kids and for all of the teachers who devote their entire lives to educating our children, to making sure they're safe and they feel loved and secure. And if there's anything I can do, even if I can sponsor your classroom, please, I will do that. What gives you hope right now? Honestly, it gives me hope is I'm a Mr. Rogers fan. So I always go by that quote when something bad was happening on TV, always look for the helpers. All I look for is the amazing people who are going above and beyond, whether it's the essential workers or people in hospitals or people delivering food to people's houses. You know, there's so much good in the world and there's so many people who want to do good. And it's like, that gives me hope. Plus my students, it's like, they're so inspiring and they're so incredible. And dealing with youth gives you hope. As long as there are children, there's hope. That's my mantra as a teacher. Well, you give me hope. Nick, thank you so much for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. In Jacksonville, one teacher has written a mock obituary for herself to protest Florida's schools reopening. She returned to work, did her best to handle all the roles placed on her shoulders, wrote Whitney Reddick, a 33-year-old special ed teacher. But the workload weakened her and the virus took hold. She succumbed to the ignorance of those in power. I just wanted those lawmakers or, you know, decision makers to feel the gravity of that decision that they are making and for it to really sit with them and to understand what they're doing. We've spent generations defunding schools. Art, sports, music, facilities, special education, kindergarten, preschool, drama, clubs, These are the things that make schools vibrant spaces where children can discover their potential. And we've gutted them. Strange that defunding schools, that was totally fine for everyone, but defunding police sets people's hair on fire. I've got a friend who is a public school teacher in New York. In her building, children have actually passed out because some rooms have such poor ventilation that carbon dioxide levels are too high to be safely breathed. What? Some rooms in her school don't even have windows. Kids need to take long public transportation trips to and from school to get there, and this is what we're asking students and teachers to return to in the middle of a pandemic. We need to invest in education in the way we invest in the military. That's it, full stop. It needs to be the biggest part of the federal budget. Schools need to be rebuilt in safe and forward-looking ways with robust, free programs that can help America catch up to the rest of the world. Our kids are great. Our teachers are amazing. And we're refusing to give them what they need to succeed. It's time to change that. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry, not.